Well, good morning. Uh, let me wish you all a very happy new year. I think I, I shook most of your hands and wished you a happy new year, but if I, I didn't, let me do it now. So, happy new year. Trust you will know God's richest blessings in 2024. Uh, this morning's study is a, a one-off. It's not part of a series. Um, we're beginning the new year with a focus this morning on prayer. And we're going to think about the church on its knees in prayer from Acts chapter 4. Um, let me just pray. Father, we come into your presence, and our prayer is exactly what we've sung. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, Shape and fashion us in your likeness. And speak, O Lord, fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, when he visited the temple in Jerusalem uh, during his final week before the cross, he said when he Enter the temple, my, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And sadly, men had turned God's house into a den of robbers. That's how Jesus described it. And when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, the church is described as the house of God. This church is his house. And this house should be a house of prayer. J.C. Ryle, a former Anglican bishop of Liverpool, he described prayer as the pulse of Christianity. A weak pulse indicates a serious problem with the heart. And no pulse means no life. And so too the relationship between the spiritual health of a church and its prayer life. A church that has a weak prayer pulse has a serious problem with its heart. It is a sure indication of a church that is dying with little spiritual life. So this morning we're going to turn to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to look at the early church in prayer. And let me just set the scene before we read the passage. When you come to the early chapters of Acts, we find the church in Jerusalem is vibrant, it is growing. Uh, in terms of numbers, when you come to the beginning of the book in chapter 1 verse 15, we read that the, the church consisted of 120 believers, 120. Uh, by the end of chapter 2, that number has grown by an additional 3,000 souls who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And by the beginning of chapter 4, the church comprises over 5,000 men. Um, so this is a, a new and vibrant Christian community that is growing fast in Jerusalem. And this is only a couple of months after the death and resurrection of 
Jesus. Now, when we come to chapter 4, this is on the back of Peter and John having healed the lame man at the gate of the temple in chapter 3. This miracle had caused quite a stir throughout the city of Jerusalem. Crowds gathered to see this man who had been lame from birth and who was now walking and leaping and praising God. Peter then preaches a sermon. And he preaches to the crowds who had gathered and he tells them that it is through faith in Jesus Christ that this man has been made strong. And as Peter preaches Jesus to the crowds in Jerusalem, a delegation arrives. Uh, We see that in chapter 4, verse 1. The captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrest Peter and John and they put them in prison. Then on the next day in verse 5 of chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the council of the religious leaders. Uh, Look at verse 5. The next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Those are familiar names. These are um, the people of power and influence in the city of Jerusalem. These are the same people that orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus. And they ask Peter and John in verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Peter declares to the council that it is the power of Jesus at work in people's lives. Peter declares that Jesus offers salvation. Verse 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The council then charge Peter and John not to speak about Jesus. Not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Stop speaking about Jesus Christ. They then threaten Peter and John again, and finally they let them go. So, so what will Peter and John do? How will the church in Jerusalem respond? Well, that's where we pick up the story in chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 23 down to verse 31. Let's, let's hear the word of God. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. What will Peter and John do next? Well, their natural response was to go and tell the church what had happened. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They went to their friends. Um, That expression, their friends, is translated in the New International Version as their own people. Uh, The King James translates it as their own company. They went to the place where they were known and to the place where they felt at home. I was thinking of that... uh, that theme tune, where everybody knows your name. Um, You want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. I think that's a theme from Cheers. It's a long time ago. It's maybe beyond most of you. But that should be the church, where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You know, that sense of family, that sense of belonging where you're known, where people care for you, love you, where they are interested in you. And it's not just a social thing. It's not just a social club because there is a common bond of faith and love in Jesus Christ. There is spiritual life. There is love, the love of God within the church. And so Peter and John's natural response was to go to their own people, to the church, and to tell them what had happened. That was natural. Now the response of the church when they heard the report from Peter and John, well, their response was supernatural. Because their impulse was not to hide, to go underground, in in view of all these threats, not to speak about Jesus. Their response was not to plot, to seek vengeance. It was not to whine and complain. It was not to panic. Their response was to pray. And that's a supernatural thing to do. They brought their situation before the supernatural power of God. Look at verse 24. When they heard it, 
they lifted their voices together to God. This is the church on its knees praying. And I want you to notice that there is a unity that binds this prayer meeting together. They lifted their voices together. The King James translates that as follows. They lifted up their voice, singular, with one accord. This was not just physical unity. There was a spiritual unity that marked their prayers. There was one voice spiritually, one voice. And they spread their situation before God in prayer. Just, just look at what they pray in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and. Now, how would you finish that prayer? Put yourself in their shoes, facing persecution, threatened against speaking about Jesus, what would you pray in that situation? Lord, look upon their threats and destroy them. Take vengeance against them. Lord, look upon their threats and remove them from power. Overturn their decision. Just look at the wisdom of what they pray for in verse 29. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They are praying for the very thing that will cause more trouble for them. They are praying for the the very thing that will put them back in prison to continue to speak about Jesus. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 5. They find themselves back in prison. They are praying for the very thing that could lead to their death. They ask to be able to continue to speak your word with all boldness, to continue to speak about Jesus Christ. Now this boldness, it is simply not blind courage in the face of hostility. It is not a human virtue. It is found in God. And it is found in who God is. And this is the secret to true prayer. And it's what we're going to focus on um, in our study this morning. Just look at the structure of this prayer. This prayer uh, runs from verse 24 down to verse 30. It's seven verses long. Five verses are focused on God and who God is. What he has promised and what he has done through Jesus Christ. That's verses 24 to 28. Five verses focused on God. And then there are only two verses focused on their need. Verses 29 to 30, where they ask God, they make the request. This prayer is full of God. It is full of scripture and it is full of faith. And here's the secret. That the boldness that they ask for, the seeds of that boldness, is actually planted 
in their faith and understanding of who God is. In their understanding of the greatness and majesty of his person. Now they believe three things about God. And these three things are expressed in this prayer. And these are the seeds of their boldness. They believe that God is not small. Verse 24. They believe that God is not scared. Verses 25 to 26. And they believe that God is not surprised. Verses 27 to 28. And it's what they believe about God. These are the seeds of the boldness that they ask God for. You know, it's true that timid Christians believe in a small God. That those who come to a small God ask for small things. Our God is not small. But we can make him small. And when our vision of God is small, our prayers become small. Or we stop praying altogether. Sinclair Ferguson uh, made this comment. He said, when we do not pray, we are practical atheists. We don't believe in God's power. When we do not pray, we are practical atheists. You remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Both men went up to the temple to pray. And Jesus said that the Pharisee standing prayed to himself. He had no God awareness in his praying. Uh, It was all about self and it was nothing of God. He prayed to himself. No God consciousness in his prayer. Just look at how the early church here addresses God in prayer. Look at verse 24. The first two words that they utter. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Now we're reading from an English translation of the Bible. The New Testament scriptures were originally written in Greek. uh, And the Greek word translated here as sovereign Lord. It's where we get our English word despot from. Now when we think of a despot, we think of a a tyrant, a dictator, a, a Hitler, a Stalin type leader. The Oxford English Dictionary a definition of a despot is a ruler or person who holds absolute power and typically exercises it in a cruel or oppressive way. But the Greek word, unlike our English word, has no negative connotations associated with it at all. It simply means a ruler who holds absolute power. And so the first thing that they acknowledge in their prayer is their confidence in God. Sovereign Lord, you are over all, you are above all, you alone exercise supreme 
power. Where do we see the supreme example of God's power? Well, look at how the prayer continues. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We see it in creation. We pray to a God who made this universe out of nothing. Who spoke it into being. He has absolute power. Everything belongs to him. Now this is most likely a a quotation from Psalm 146. This prayer is, is full of scripture. Let me just read some verses from Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes. In a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Do not trust man. Verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Whose hope is in the Lord his God. Who made heaven and earth. The sea and all that is in them. Who keeps faith forever. The Lord will reign forever. Your God to all generations. Praise the Lord. Our God is not small. He is the God who keeps faith forever. Who keeps every promise. The God who remains faithful. Isaiah in chapter 40. Reminds us. That it is God who sits above the circle of the earth. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And yet despite the the greatness, the majesty of God and the vastness of his creation. He is a God who is interested in the details. the, The minutest details of his creation. Isaiah says in verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's he's talking about the, uh, the billions of stars in the universe. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power. Not one, not one is missing. This is a God who is interested in the details of his people's lives. The circumstances that you are passing through. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases Strength. Our God is not small. What is it we sing with the children? My, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. That's why it's right that when we come together to pray as a church, that we focus first and we focus primarily on the glory and majesty of God. We remind ourselves of who God is and what he has promised to be. So what is your vision 
of the greatness of God as we go into 2024. Are you holding the telescope the wrong way around? Are you making God smaller to fit your vision? Are you shrinking God into your thinking and into your circumstances? Perhaps you need to get into the Bible. To study the word of God. To appreciate the greatness and majesty of who God is. The early church believed that God is not small. And secondly, they believed that God is not scared. God is not scared. The church at Jerusalem had every right to feel scared. The council that had arrested Peter and John that had threatened them to stop speaking about Jesus. This was the same council that just a couple of months ago arranged the arrest, the torture and the execution of Jesus. And the threat of persecution that they faced was real. It was powerful and it had history, recent history, every ingredient to make the church feel scared. And maybe as you step into 2024, maybe you too are scared. Scared of what lies ahead this year. Maybe 2023 has been a difficult year uh, and you're struggling with uncertainty. Struggling with difficulties, with disappointments in your life. And it's left you feeling apprehensive and it may even have left you feeling scared. God is not scared. These early Christians believed in a God who was not small and in a God who was not scared. Look at verses 25 to 26. You are a God who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you spoke and you said by the Holy Spirit. And then they go on to quote from Psalm 2. Let's just turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, there are two key themes in Psalm 2. The first theme is the opposition to Christ. And to his cause. And to his church. See that in verse 2. A rebel alliance of kings and rulers. Jews and Gentiles. Nations united in opposition against Jesus Christ. That continues today. They want to break free. Burst free from God's reins. That's verse 3. But the second theme in Psalm 2. Is this. It is the futility of that opposition to God. God sees man's opposition from heaven. 
and he laughs. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God is not scared. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The church at Jerusalem, they knew their scriptures. They knew their Bible, such as it was at that time. And they understood Psalm 2 in relation to their own situation. That only a couple of months earlier, rulers in Jerusalem, Herod and Pilate, Jew and Gentile, had set themselves against Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed. And they did their very worst to him. They, they conspired against him. They killed him. They thought they had got rid of him. Peter, as he preaches in Jerusalem, in these early chapters of Acts, he says, you denied him, Jesus Christ. You killed him. But God raised him. God exalted him. God is not scared. God had thwarted the very same opposition that they now faced. And they were absolutely convinced of the power of God. They had seen the risen Christ. They had spent time with him. They had watched him ascend to heaven. And they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. And that God had raised him from the dead. He is the creator God. Nature is within his control. But Psalm 2 also tells us that the nations are under God's control. Perhaps you're here today. And perhaps you have set yourself against God. You have set yourself against Jesus. And you are living in rebellion against Jesus Christ. You are, are, are living in rejection of Jesus Christ as your Lord and King. Psalm 2 tells us that your rebellion is futile. But God is gracious. And this is how Psalm 2 ends. It ends with an appeal to those who oppose God. It, to be wise and to be warned and to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their king and to bow and serve him. Look at verses 10 to 12 of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Listen to the appeal of God from Psalm 2 today. If you've not already done so, give your life to Jesus Christ. Serve him. 
The church is on its knees. They are praying to a God who they believe is not small, a God who they believe is not scared. And the third thing they believe, they are praying to a God who is not surprised. Look at verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's hand and God's plan. God is never taken by surprise. God is never caught off guard. The cross did not surprise God. Verse 28 tells us that it was all part of God's predetermined plan. That's why God is not scared, because God is not surprised. And when the apostles were arrested and threatened, it didn't take God by surprise. And the point is this, that nothing that happens in our lives takes God by surprise. God is sovereign. And he is sovereign in our lives. He is sovereign in our circumstances. He is sovereign in our suffering. And when our lives, when our situations feel out of control, we need to remember that God is in control and he is the sovereign Lord, he is not small, he is not scared, and he is never taken by surprise. And as we go into 2024, we need to lift our eyes to see the greatness of our God. He is greater than all our fears, greater than all our problems. Now, God didn't make the persecution disappear. The problems at the early church in in Jerusalem, the problems that they faced didn't just suddenly vanish after this prayer. But God strengthened their faith. They were bold in their witness because of what they believed about God. He is the sovereign Lord. He plans everything that happens. He is in control. He is greater than all. So why would we not be bold? Or why would we ever be afraid knowing that this is who our God is? And if we have a right appreciation of who God is, it puts everything into perspective. Look at how this prayer meeting ends in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The very building in which they prayed could not contain the presence of God. It shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There was such a tangible sense of God coming down among his people. This is what happens when the church is on its knees 
in prayer. There is a sense of the presence of God among his people. And I trust Acts chapter 4 may encourage us to be a praying people. To be a praying church. And as we go into 2024, may our vision be filled with the greatness of our God. May this house be a house of prayer. May this church be a church that is on its knees in prayer to a God who is not small, a God who is not scared, and a God who is not surprised by anything. He is sovereign Lord. Let's pray. Father God, you are the sovereign Lord. You are the creator God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. You are the eternal, almighty and incomparable God. We thank you for what we have learned of you from your word today. That you are not small. You are not scared. You are never taken by surprise. We remember that all opposition to you is futile. That you have set your king, Jesus, on your holy hill and he will reign. Pray for those here today who are struggling. Pray for those who have doubts. Pray for those who are passing through times of difficulty. Lord, may they take and find refuge in Jesus Christ. May they kiss the Son. May they serve Him as Lord. And Father, I pray for this church. I pray that you would help us to be a praying people, a praying church that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be channels of your grace and love. And may your name be honored. Father, we ask all this in and through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.